Dear Memphis, Dear Memphis, name an emotion we've experienced it over the past few days. We have felt sadness, anger, confusion, and fear. Memphis, the history in you is full of events that have rocked people to the core, yet even with scars, you keep proving that you are resilient, steadfast, and though you get knocked down, you don't get knocked out, you keep getting back up. Memphis, you have been my home for over a third of my life. Over three-fourths of my marriage has been spent in the city. And for my two children, it's all they've ever known. As a family, we chose you, and we keep choosing you, because we believe the city of Memphis is worth making a home in. This morning, there should be a young man walking into a church. Yeah, Tyree Nichols isn't with his family today. In Memphis, even as I stand in a church right now where we remember every week the power that flows from the blood of Jesus, we are reminded far too often that we live in a city full of blood from violence and injustice. Yet, Memphis, we choose you, and we believe you are a city worth fighting for. Memphis and you, there are a lot of things that are broken. There are too many children growing up without fathers in their lives and many children growing up with fathers who may be present in body, but not in mind, heart, or connection. There are too many people stuck in cycles of poverty. There's too much racism, classism, and injustice in you. Yet Memphis, I feel like the apostles in John chapter 6 when they looked at Jesus and they said, where else should I go? Memphis, I choose to live in you and to stand for you even when the world tells me to run. And I choose to fight for you and with you even when voices say that you may not be worth fighting for. And Memphis, I don't know if you knew this, but this past week it was as if national media wanted to see you burn. It was as if national media wanted to see violent protest erupt. It would have made for great clickbait. It would have given the left and the right people to blame and specific acts to point at, yet Memphis, you made us proud. You modeled grit and determination. Memphis, the Ross family isn't through with you because God isn't through with you either. And I believe there is a pen in the hand of God, and he is not through writing the story of this city, and we, the church, get to play a part in how the story goes. Memphis, for some people, they love the city you used to be. I want to fall into the camp of those who choose to love you for what this city can be. Memphis, I choose not to run from you because Jesus taught us to engage. And I choose not to live in fear because Jesus modeled a life of risking in order to spread love, sacrificing in order to spread hope, and stepping into suffering in order to spread redemption. I am never embarrassed to let people know I'm from Memphis. I am proud to tell people that I may be Texas born, but I am Memphis made. I'm proud to tell people I'm from Memphis. 
And until the day I die, I will not stop praying the prayer Jesus taught me to pray. May his kingdom come. May his will be done on earth and in Memphis, just as it is in heaven. Sincerely, Josh Ross. How's your week been? <laughs> uh, these are tough weeks. They're tough weeks as a preacher because I show up and I know that some of us came into this space today. And what we were thinking is, we have heard this on the news for days. Let's just go to church and focus on Jesus and not deal with all the distractions out in the world. Let's just focus on the gospel. And then there's some of us who came into church today, and what we're thinking is if we don't give space to talk about the events of the last few days, we don't have a heart. Like, we don't care about compassion. And then there's some people coming in today, and you're like, I don't care if Preacher Josh talks about the events. I just don't want him to, like, make me too uncomfortable. Or the words he uses, I hope they align, like, with my ideology. And then there's some of you in the space today where you're thinking right now, what happened in Memphis over the last few days? You don't pay attention to the news or social media, and in some ways you may be a lot better because of it. And I wrestle, and I've been in text groups with preacher friends and pastor friends all over the 901 over the last two days. Do we rewrite our sermons and do something completely different, or do we stick to what we had already written? And there are some preachers who totally rewrote what they were going to do, and I'm going to stick to what I had prepared to do, and I've tweaked it a little bit for this morning, all right? And I'm talking about fasting today, and I've planned for this for, for weeks. I've told you I'm talking about fasting today, which some of you, if you're thinking in 2023, like the 20 topics I love for Preacher Josh, for Josh to preach on, fasting probably wouldn't make it in the top 20 of hardly any of your lists. But three of the first four fasts in the Bible are about grief and loss. It's brokenness that happened, and it's nations or it's groups of people who came together and said, this is like our response to God. We're going to fast, we're going to pray, because there's only one person who can fix the brokenness we are feeling and that we are experiencing. And in some ways, if there's anybody in the space today and you're a first-generation Christian and you don't know the Bible very well, like a day like this may work really well for you because you may be new to faith and you're looking for ways to grow in faith. So as I talk about prayer and fasting and what this meant in the Bible, what it means for your lives, you may be open to trying new things. It may be a lot harder for those of us who've been walking with God for decades, who've already developed certain practices and maybe have neglected others, and maybe we have formed practices and like there's really really no room for other tools on our tool belt. You know what I'm saying? So I'm going to encourage you today just to listen. Take some notes. Throughout this message, I'm going to have around 30 slides popping up on the screen. I'm going to have quotes. I'm going to have some suggestions. I, I want to end this message with some really practical help for you, for anybody who may want to give a form of fasting a shot. So feel free to take notes or take pictures of the screen as some of these quotes come up because we're going to be moving fairly quick this morning, all right? And I hope you'll give me a permission and grace today because I'm going to preach in a way where there may be a few moments when we can laugh together. There may be a few moments when some tears fall. And hopefully we end this message in this worship service by us all saying we want to hunger for God in deeper ways. So in Judges chapter 20, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time there, in Judges chapter 20, there were 12 tribes, and one of the tribes was a tribe named Benjamin. And the tribe of Benjamin had committed a hideous sin, an awful sin, and they refused to repent of it. So you had 11 tribes who decided to go to battle against one tribe. 
11 tribes versus one. The tribe of Benjamin is outnumbered 15 to one. Like they didn't want that smoke. So day one, what happens is the 11 tribes, they pray and then they go into battle. And as they go into battle, this little bitty tribe of Benjamin, they destroy them. 22,000 people die. So all the other 11 tribes, they regroup. And this time they weep and they pray. And then they go back in the battle on day two. On day two, they go into battle. 18,000 of them died. Little bitty tribe of Benjamin, they win again. So now the 11 tribes, they go and they regroup again. But this time when they regroup, here's what happens. Judges chapter 20, verse 26. You'll see it on the screen. Then all the Israelites, the whole army, went up to Bethel. And there they sat weeping before the Lord. And they fasted that day until evening. And presented burnt offerings and fellowship offerings to the Lord. Now, surely somebody there was like, hey, you know, maybe we need better protein and more forms of energy and you know, things to help us recover so we can go back into battle. But instead, what they chose to do is a big group, even though they had lost 40,000 of their warriors. So all kind of grief is happening in their camp. And they choose to pray, to weep, to fast, and to worship. And then they ask God, should we go back out? And God said, go back out, and I will hand them into your hands. And they won. Now, I want to be really careful how I talk about and reference Judges 20, 26, because I don't want to make this sound like fasting was the magic potion in Judges 20, and it wasn't until the people fasted that God had pity on them or that God moved in their lives, because I don't want you thinking in your life that if you're asking for a raise or a better job, that if you fast, God will grant you your request, or if you're looking for healthier relationships in your life, that God will grant you the request. I don't want you to think fasting is some magic potion that manipulates God in some kind of way, but in Judges 20 it does seem like there was something about prayer and fasting it became a centering piece for them a reminder of what it is they are or who it is they are dependent upon that they don't depend on their own strength or their own will or their own warriors it's it's they need God I grew up, I didn't hear about fasting at all. I didn't hear sermons on fasting. I was never challenged to fast. I knew about trying to run fast. I knew about driving fast. That was about it. I had friends who fasted during the season of Lent, but they always fasted from things they hated anyway. Like I had friends who would fast from salad during Lent, and I would ask if they liked salad, but they hated salad. Or friends who would fast from chocolate, and I would ask if they liked chocolate. They hated chocolate. So I just, that, that was my experience with fasting. And it was never on my radar, ever, to skip a meal, ever. Now here's one of the differences between Casey and my wife. Here's one of the differences between Casey and me. Casey is arguably the most task-oriented person I know in my life. She will step into a day with nine tasks, and she's going to get after all nine tasks. Casey and I both take pride in our work ethic. Like, we want to work hard as a family. We want to play hard. We want to have a lot of fun, but we want to work hard. Casey will step into a day with tasks, and don't get in the way of her trying to accomplish, like moving from task number three to task number four. Now, here's what happens sometimes in Casey's life. She'll come home around 4, 4.30 or 5, and she'll talk about how hungry she is. And I will say, Casey, did you remember to eat lunch today? And she'll say, oh, I forgot to eat lunch. She did this when she was pregnant with our kids sometimes. She would just get after tasks, and I would have to call her around 2, 2.30. Did you eat lunch today? Sometimes she is so focused on work, she forgets to eat lunch. Now, here's the thing with me. I don't ever do that. 
ever. There's not a day in my life that has happened to me. I could work 15-hour days, yet at 10.30 in the morning, and if I'm ever in an appointment with you at 10.30, I just want you to know I am 100% present in the moment, but around 10.30, I'm already thinking about lunch. I'm thinking about the appointment. I'm thinking about where we're going. I'm thinking about the menu at the restaurant. I'm thinking about if the place, you have to buy appetizers, or they give you appetizers. Like I, I'm thinking about lunch long before lunch ever happens. At the age of 19, I was challenged to fast for the first time in my life. Randy Harris, one of our professors, he was our Bible professor, one of my mentors to this day. In our freshman Bible class, he encouraged us and challenged us to fast. So I gave it a shot. 24 hours. I ate one night. Wasn't going to eat again until the next night. You want to know how that experience went for me? It was awful. It was one of the worst experiences of my life. I hated it. I was cranky. I was a bad friend. I was a bad student. I didn't go into that day of fasting, like with any reason to fast. Like there was nothing on my mind of like a spiritual purpose or when I feel hunger, here's what I'm going to take before God. It was just, it was just awful. And Randy challenged us to fast because Randy started off with all of his freshman Bible majors talking about the Sermon on the Mount. And in Matthew chapter 6, which is where we've been the last couple of days, Jesus says this, when you fast, this is in verse 16, now, if you'll go back to that, uh, the, the slide right before, just the Rhythm of Life slide. Right now, we're in this series called Rhythm of Life, our adult faith option on Sundays in January. They've been doing the same thing. They've been talking about rhythm of life, and we've been encouraging you to think about spiritual practices and spiritual disciplines and habits in your life. So prayer and how you're going to read Scripture and service. And there's, a, I mean, a long list of ways that we connect to God. And we have encouraged you to try to write something down, even if it's just one thing you want to try in your life, one step you want to take closer to God, write it down, share it with someone else so they can be praying over you as you attempt this year, to, or at least in this season, to connect to God in some deeper ways. And the language Jesus uses in Matthew chapter 6 is when you give and when you pray and when you fast. It's like Jesus just assumes that these things are going to happen. It's not a command. It's not a suggestion. It's an assumption. Jesus just assumes that the people of God are going to honor some of these practices in their life. Now, here's what verse 16 says. When you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do. For they disguise their faces to show others they are fasting. And truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face so that it will not be obvious to others that you are fasting, but only to your Father who is unseen. And your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. Now, in this moment, I don't think Jesus is talking about one of the national fasts, like one of the fasts that everyone part would participate in. He's probably re re referencing more private fasts, and with it comes a promise of a reward. And in Matthew 6, he promises rewards when you give and when you pray and when you fast, but he doesn't say what the reward is, and the reward may just be connection to God. Like, that's it. It may not be God doing something abundant in your life. It may just be that honoring practices, the reward is connection to God. Now, sometimes what we do with our faith is we do this. If my heart's not in it, I may not need to do it because I don't want to be a hypocrite. So if my heart's not in going to church today, I'm not going to go because I don't want to be a hypocrite. Or if my heart's not in service, I'm not going to go do it because I don't want to be a hypocrite. Or if my heart's not in fasting or, or prayer, I'm not going to do it because I don't want to be a hypocrite. I don't know if we do that with any other part of our life. 
I don't know how often we would say, well, my heart not, is not all the way into lunch. I'm just going to skip lunch. Or my heart is not all in. Being a dad today, I may not be a good dad today. I, or my heart's not an exercise, so I'm not going to exercise. Or my heart is not in going to see a doctor or going to see a therapist. But you do it anyway. But when it comes to faith, sometimes we're like, if my heart's not in it, I'm not going to do it because I don't want to be a hypocrite. And I just, I guess I want to nudge us today that sometimes there is a blessing in just showing up and being obedient. Sometimes there's a blessing in just committing to space. Even if our heart's not in it, we're still going to step into it and just see what God will do. This is a hard sermon anytime. I mean, especially like coming out of events of this week because like you start talking about fasting and some of you have already decided if you want to listen to me or not. Like, is this something you even want to be educated about? Fasting is something that shows up in the Bible around 80 times. Jesus modeled it. He practiced it. In the Old Testament, you have a lot of examples. In the New Testament, you have some examples. In the early church, we have documents where they talk about it. In fact, in the early church, you have documents that say in the early church, they fasted. You ready for this? Every Wednesday and every Friday, twice a week, over a hundred times a year, the early church believed in this practice. There was something about saying no to the things of the world that prepared you to say yes to God in deeper ways. But one of the hardest things for us is we love food. Some of you already know what you're doing for lunch today. And some of you, and don't raise your hand, some of your stomachs are already growling this morning. And some of you weren't thinking about lunch, but now that I mentioned it, guess what? Now you're thinking about lunch. Fasting shows up around 80 times. And if you want a chapter that talks about fasting, a chapter that's full of fasting, Isaiah 58 is where you need to go. Let me work you through it real quick. It says this, Isaiah 58, verses 2 and 4. It says, for day after day they seek me out. This is God saying this. They seem eager to know my ways as if they were a nation that does what is right and has not forsaken the commands of its God. And they ask me for just decisions. And they seem eager for God to come near them and here's what they say. Why have we fasted and you have not seen it? Why have we humbled ourselves and you have not noticed? Yet on the day of fasting, you do as you please and you exploit all your workers. Your fasting ends in quarreling and strife and in striking each other with wicked fists. And you cannot fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high. Now here's the thing. Do you see what's going on here? People are like fasting, but their hearts aren't in it or they're fasting and their hunger is now making them into like just not fun people to be around. And you know these people in your life too. Do you know people in your life that if they are hungry, you're not going to ask for anything? Like we joked around growing up, like never give dad bad news when he's hungry. Or like never, when dad's hungry, like that's not a time to tell him you got in a fender bender or you made a bad grade in school. Like there's some people when they're hungry, like you, it's hard to talk to them. Like you're like, let's get food in their belly and then we can talk. So in their hunger, what they are doing is they're like taking it out on everybody around them. Here's what it says, verse 5. Is this the kind of fast I have chosen? Only a day for people to humble themselves. Is it only for bowing one's head like a reed and for lying in sackcloth and ashes? Is that what you call a fast? A day acceptable to the Lord? In verse 6, it's not this... Is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen? To loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke, 
to set the oppressed free and break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor with uh, and to pr- provide the poor wanderer with shelter? And when you see the naked, to clothe them and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood. In Isaiah 58, there's something about fasting and justice, fasting and service. And I know some of you that when you practice the discipline of fasting, you have gone downtown to Court Square or you've gone places where you feed the hungry. You've taken what could have been yours for lunch and you went and you gave it away. Like you used the time you eat to do something redemptive and godly with your time. Early on in the years of our nation, Congress proclaimed three days of fasting. We've had three presidents in the history of the United States who have proclaimed days of national fasts. James Madison, John Adams, and during the Civil War, Abraham Lincoln did it on three different occasions. Can you imagine what would have happened? Let's just say over the last decade, if one of our presidents encouraged us and tried to honor or proclaim a day of fasting, if President Biden would have done this this past week, or former President Trump or former President Obama, if they would have announced a proclamation of, hey, next Wednesday, we're calling the whole nation to fast. You know how the response would go. There would be millions of people who would say, we will do whatever you have to say. And millions of people who would say, I will never do anything you tell us to do, even if, even if it's right. But then I try to think even of myself this past week. I've been writing this sermon on fasting for a couple of weeks, fully aware of events that were going on in Shelby County. I even sent you a church-wide email on Friday calling us to pray over the city. Yet it never came to my mind until this morning to call this church to pray and fast. Which, especially throughout the Old Testament, seemed to be the response to disasters, to trouble in the world, to brokenness. If you know what? We should pray and fast, and people would do it. Here are a couple of quotes for you. Fasting clears us out and opens us up to intentionally seeking God's will and grace in a way that goes beyond normal habits of worship and prayer. A definition of fasting by Donald Whiteney is this. Fasting is a Christian's voluntary abstinence from food for spiritual purposes. In the Bible, every example of fasting has something to do with food. I think it's fine. I think it's good. Some of it, it would be great for some of us to fast from social media or electronics and fast from shopping for a month. I'm just throwing out examples. Like There are things you can fast from. In the Bible, every example has something to do with food. And I think one of the hardest parts about fasting is this. I don't think it's the hunger. I think it's our love for food. I work at a church. People love to feed people who work at churches. And when people bring food up to the church, they aren't bringing salads. And if they did, I think we would all huddle up and we'd be like, what are they saying about us? Like, is there a message here? People don't bring pots of green beans and grilled asparagus and put them in the kitchen for us to eat throughout the week. It's cookies and desserts and banana pudding. We're afraid that something like fasting is going to make us suffer dreadfully, and as Americans, we don't like to suffer. We try to eliminate every form of suffering. Food is abundant, and we have developed a horror to be without it. 
It's not until I fast that I realize, not just like big portions that I eat. I don't, I don't eat large portions much anymore. It's how much I eat outside of a small breakfast, lunch, and dinner. It's all those other moments that I eat throughout the day. And when Casey and I are planning trips, like we're going back into Texas with the family, you want to talk about the horror we have of not having food to eat? Like we plan our trip of when are we going to leave, and based on when we're going to leave, we have to decide, are we going to eat on this side of the river or in Little Rock or Texarkana? And we have to plan it that way because you don't want to get stuck in between Memphis and Little Rock without something to eat. You don't want to get stuck between Little Rock and Texarkana. So this is why, and I did not have to do any research to do this for you today. This is why I could tell you every single Chick-fil-A between Memphis and Dallas. That if you leave here, you have to get on the other side of Little Rock and exit 127 to the right is a Chick-fil-A. You could go a few more miles, exit 123 to the left, there's a Chick-fil-A next to a pilot so you can get food, then go get gas, hand out Chick-fil-A while you're getting gas and get back out on the road. Arkadelphia will fool you. Because on your map, it tells you there's a Chick-fil-A, but it's not a standalone Chick-fil-A. It's in the student center of a college. And nobody wants to have to park and walk into a student center to get your Chick-fil-A. So don't believe the garbage that Arkadelphia is telling you about Chick-fil-A. Texarkana's exit 220B, but that's tricky because it's next to a Dairy Queen and a Whataburger is close by. So if a family of four trying to make a decision about lunch, you can get in an argument. And we think about these things because we don't want to get stuck in a place where we don't have something to eat. Listen to this. Food is necessary for life, but we have made it more necessary than God. And here's two quotes for you. Ultimately, to fast means only one thing, to be hungry. To go to the limit of human condition, which depends entirely on food, and being hungry to discover that this dependency is not the whole truth about us. That hunger itself is first of all a spiritual state and that it is in its last reality hunger for God. Your stomach is not your God. And for many of us, that's what we've made it to be. Marjorie Thompson says this, when what we consume is consuming us, and what we possess is possessing us. The only way back to health and balance is to refrain from using those things that have control over us. So here's what I want to do. I want to walk you through. I'm going to do this pretty quick. Six different fasts that you see in the Bible. And then I want to offer you just five practical steps that if you want to give fasting a shot, here are five steps you need to know. Here are six different fasts that you see in the Bible. One, you have a normal fast, and this is going to be, probably today, the most popular fast people will engage in. And a normal fast is abstaining from food but still having liquid. Like I encourage people, a lot of times water, I, I, I think juice can be helpful. If you get a headache because you're a coffee addict, drink you a cup of coffee on a day of fasting. It's not that you get everything right about fasting. But in this, you're going to stay away from food, but you're still going to drink something. This is what, how uh, Jesus in the desert, this is explained, that Jesus did not have food when he was being tempted for 40 days. You also have, secondly, a partial fast. This is, an, uh, this is a limitation of the diet, but not from food. So in Daniel chapter 1, they're trying to stuff them with food so these men will look better when they stand before the king. And Daniel suggests that there be a 21-day diet for him and his friends of just vegetables, 21 days with vegetables. I know some of you hear that and you're like, I would rather die. Like 21 days, I'd rather just try to eat nothing for 21 days. That's a partial fast. 
There's an absolute fast, which is avoidance from food and for all liquids for long periods of time. And I want it to be on the record that I am not suggesting that you step into this. Dr. Randy, I know we have attorneys in the house, write it down. I'm not asking people to do this. But there are moments in the Bible where people, maybe for a day, would give up food and drink. There's a moment in Saul's life, in his conversion, where it says for three days he did not eat or drink anything. And then you have a supernatural fast. And let it be on the record, please don't ever try this. Because you have two examples of long extended periods where Moses and Elijah, the two men who are on the mountain of transfiguration with Jesus, that they go long periods without food or drink. It was a miraculous supernatural fast. You had national fasts when the entire community would abstain from food for specific reasons. A lot of these were in the Old Testament. And then you had church-wide fasts where in Acts chapter 13, they're sending out missionaries and they don't just pray over them at the end of a worship service. They fasted as they laid their hands on them and prayed. And in Acts chapter 14, when they appointed new elders, they appointed them and then they fasted as they affirmed those people before the Lord. So six different kind of fasts with the normal fast being we're going to give up food for some period of time. A lot of my fasts are either 24 hours or I'll wake up one day early in the morning, eat a bar or a banana and not eat anything until dinner. So it's around a 12-hour fast. If you want to give it a shot, I would encourage you not to start with a 24-hour fast. Start by giving up a snack or start by giving up one meal. There are two reasons you see fasting, two main reasons in the Bible. Number one is repentance. Number two is preparation. Number one is that we use a fast to lay ourselves before God as people who crave righteousness. Meaning that as we fast, there may be some things in our lives that God's going to bring to the forefront that we need to deal with in the presence of God. The second is preparation. That as we prepare for life or for mission or for a new season of life or a calling on our life from God, we fast to set our heart right. So, five things for you to know if you want to step in and give one a shot. Number one is this. Schedule a time. I don't want anybody hearing this today, leaving here saying, you know what, I'm going to start today. I'm just going to skip lunch. And family, we think our whole family should skip lunch today because Josh talked about fasting. Don't do it. Schedule it. Think down the road, schedule it. Plan for it. Schedule it. Uh, I have to schedule my fasts because a lot of times I have appointments two, three weeks out, so I just have to call it an appointment. And let me give you an invitation because beginning next Wednesday or this Wednesday night, February 1st, 8th, and 15th, Jim Hinkle is going to be facilitating a time that we're going to meet here on Wednesday night from 6.30, 7.30 to talk through rhythm of, the rhythm of life that we've been working on. If you want space for you to share some of your disciplines or to hear other people talk about theirs, we're going to do this on Wednesday night for the next three weeks. And we want to encourage you, if you want to get fasting a shot, let's do it together on February 8th. It's a Wednesday. Hinkle and myself will probably fast from Tuesday night, February 7th, until Wednesday night, February 8th. If you just want to try to give up lunch or you want to fast sometime in that period, we'll come together Wednesday night on February 8th and we'll talk about it. One schedule a time. Number two is what is the spiritual purpose? If you do not have a purpose for a day of fasting, it will be nothing but a miserable weight loss plan. 
When I enter into a fast, I'm asking God beforehand, what is it I need to pray about when I experience hunger pangs? And there are times I pray for my unrighteousness. There have been days where I'm praying for my kids or my marriage or this church or our city or big decisions or friends who are making big decisions. You want something on your, in the forefront of your mind, something you write on your hand, that when you experience hunger pangs, that is what you are offering up to God. For me, when I fast, usually it's a one to three uh, in the afternoon. Like, that is the window when my mind is the clearest. It's the window that I am the most hungry. And it's the window that I try to carve out time to be with the Lord. Number three, consider how you're going to break your fast. When I fasted, when Randy Harris challenged me at the age of 19, I fasted for 24 hours. It was miserable. And then I went to Long John Silver's and I got a number two. Two pieces of fried fish, a piece of fried chicken, five fried shrimp, an extra portion of French fries, two hush puppies, and extra crunchies. I was miserable for two hours. I had broken fast before eating Mexican food. I don't recommend it because chips and salsa come out first. You're hungry, you eat a lot, you will regret it. Consider how you're going to break a fast. Be kind to your body. Number four, fasting is not about manipulating God. And there have been times I've fasted, and I think that's, this was my approach to fasting, is God is going to be so impressed by what I say no to that God is going to grant the desires that I'm taking before the Lord. Fasting is not about manipulating God. Number five, fasting is about connecting to the Lord. That's it. And let me end with this. In the book of Zechariah, there's this moment where they're questioning. Okay, okay, God, we've been, we've been fasting now for 70 years. Like two different months of the year, we've been fasting. Like, should we still do this? So they're asking, like, should they still honor some of these practices? And here's what it says in Zechariah. In Zechariah chapter 7, verse 5 and 6, it says, Ask all the people of the land and the priests. This is God saying this. When you fasted and mourned in the fifth and seventh months, seventh months for the past 70 years, this is the question. Was it really for me that you fasted? And when you were eating and drinking, were you not just feasting for yourselves? And I think that's the question we ask about every spiritual practice in our lives. If you want to make a practice of being physically healthy this year, is it for God or is it for you? Like when you pray, is it for God that you pray or just what you want God to do? When you serve, is it so you feel better about yourself or is it for God? I think that's the question we need to ask about every spiritual practice in our lives. God's saying, are you doing this for me? And today, I, you, may, you may choose to never give fasting a shot in your life, but I think we can all agree. We want God to stir in us a deeper hunger for the Lord. Is that not what you want for yourself, for the next generation? And Jesus is the one who claimed to be, I am the bread of life. And Jesus says, John chapter 6, that anyone who eats that bread, they will never go hungry. Like Jesus is able to fill us in ways that will satisfy us for eternity. So I want to ask Joe Ward, one of our shepherds, to come up to my right. Reggie Lee, one of our shepherds, is going to be in the back. And Jenna King and Rachel Galbraith, are two of our prayer leaders who will be up these walls by the exit doors here in just a moment. And I'll be over to my left. And here's what we're going to do when we come to the table today. And I'm just going to leave that statement right there on the screen for a couple of minutes. As we take the bread and take the cup today, let's ask God to give us a deeper hunger for the Lord.
And you may choose to go one to any of these prayer leaders today and your response or your request to them is, I just want to hunger for God in deeper ways. That could be it. And just give us a chance to pray for you. And if there's anything else you want to bring before this church, my friend Joe Ward, one of our shepherds, is over here to my right. Let's pray together. Bow your heads, close your eyes. For God, it's in this meal, taking the bread and the cup, that we are reminded that you have set the world right and you are in the process of setting the world right. So it's the bread and the cup today that remind us of the mission we're in, of the, how you want to set our city right. And as we take this today, even though it's just something so small that represents something so big, will you satisfy us today? Increase our appetite. Increase what we crave for. Give us a deeper hunger for you. Through Jesus we pray. Amen.